Hello, it's Jean-Marc, storyteller and astrologer. This is my autobiography with AstroSource. There will be mostly live stories. For the AstroSource, I will make a few comments about some transits at the end of uh, this uh, narration. And uh, you can also look at my birth chart and listen to these stories as interpretation of the birth chart. I was born on the 4th of November 1961 at 9.30 p.m., 21h30, in a French city called Laxou, L-A-X-O-U, is just near Nancy, Nancy. When I was 21, I found a job in a psychiatric hospital. I worked there for two years as an auxiliary nurse. Auxiliary was the lowest rank in the hierarchy. Lower than that, you're just ill. I'm still thinking of the people I met there. Let me introduce them to you. Morissette. Morissette was about 30 years old, but she looked 16, the age she was when she was trapped by schizophrenia. She wore that kind of dull clothing you wear where you are an inmate in a psychiatric hospital. She wore socks, but no shoes. She had shoulder-length dark and untidy hair, and she was possessed by anger. She spent her days walking to and fro in the doorways or turning around the tables, anticlockwise, always anticlockwise. Her fist clenched. She was churning out an unceasing string of the angriest and crudest words. I'm not going to repeat. Her anger is my anger, though. One day, Morissette stood in front of me, in the middle of the path, hands joined over her head, on one leg, as if practicing a yoga stance called the tree. She glanced at me, and barked. I am a Christmas tree. You, turn me on. I looked at her and replied, Morissette, it's not Christmas. It's Easter soon. She replied, Shut your fucking mouth. I am the one in charge in here. She dropped the stance and resumed her speed walking to the other end of the corridor. When I declare my love that way, I'm rarely understood. It's a shame, it's a beautiful way. Sometimes she stared right into my eyes. She was a notion of aggression. I used to hold her gaze. It was a challenge, a bit of a game for me, but it was also a way to get in touch. It happened once, only once. I took her in my arms to help her cross the yard outside. The ground was wet, she wore socks. I held her like a child. She cuddled up in my arms with a happy smile, and I let her go on the other side. One day, a new resident arrived. She was a beautiful granny with long white hair falling in two plates. Her name was Philomene, like Philomena. She came from a retirement home. She had lost her mind long ago, but the reason she was only now admitted in the psychiatric hospital was that she had become incontinent 
so the retirement home didn't want her anymore. Philomene did not talk. She looked intensely lost. In the retirement home, they used to tie her to the radiators. We found this unacceptable, and we let her roam about freely, but she was annoying. She kept trying to grasp people's arms in a perpetual quest for connection and comfort. She even tried to cling to Morissette. Morissette swung round sharply and sent her off violently. What do you want? Philomène was extremely surprised. She lost her balance, hit the wall, and fell onto her bum. We hurried to her rescue. She was okay. Aghast, but she was always aghast anyway. We sat her at a table, gave her some fruit juice. We stroked her hair. She was fine. But ten minutes later, she was dead. It was a cold winter. It was dark outside. We laid her on a bed. Her skin had turned yellow. Nobody said anything to Morissette. She was howling in the doorways. The time I spent working there in this psychiatric hospital had, had a huge impact on me. Mentally ill people, like poets maybe, are in contact with another side of reality, a side that normal people manage to suppress. Under the masks of appearances, under the earthy crust, there is magma. Magma is stronger. Earthquakes, volcanoes, and madness will always erupt wherever the fabric is weak or weaker. The rigidity of our prejudices, our moral principles, and our theories will always be beaten by madness. Yvonne. Yvonne was bipolar with a capital B. When she was depressed, she would sit all day long on a plastic chair in the doorway. She would stay there for months. We forced her to go to bed at night and to get up in the morning. Sitting on her chair, her head was falling down on her chest. Her back had no strength, and her legs stayed the position they fell in when she collapsed on the chair. She was heavily empty. She was immensely sad. When she was somehow stabilized, she was an upper-class lady on the brink of third age. She was very knowledgeable. Once she gave us a little lecture about the different varieties of champagne, which astonished us. When she was up, she couldn't keep her clothes on. She ran about in the world in a state of extreme agitation, sending her clothes away, pissing and shitting on her way to nowhere without even noticing. I remember following Yvonne with a scoop, a bucket, and a mop. She had to be locked up in a room and would tear up the mattress into small pieces. When she would be down again, squashed by sadness and shame on her chair, she would remember everything.
It happened that the psychiatrists found out a particular dosage of medicines, of pills, chemicals, that seemed to prove effective. Even smooths were much more even than they used to be for months. A christening was planned in her family a few months ahead, and it was agreed that Yvonne would temporarily leave the hospital to join the family gathering the weekend it was planned. Yvonne was really looking forward to it. Unfortunately, as the time was drawing closer, expectation and anxiety were growing more and more compelling for Yvonne. Another manic crisis broke out in the weeks before the family gathering. The emotions were too strong. Stop, madame, stop! Raymond. Raymond was an old chap, not very tall, with a kind of friendly bulldog face and shining white hair. He looked perpetually satisfied, except when it was time to get into the bathtub against his will and have a shower aimed at his calves and the rest of his anatomy. He begged with his irresistibly friendly voice. It was too hot, it was too cold, it was too wet, basically. But he had to be kept clean. He was a marine officer in the past. It was always entertaining to have a little chat with Raymond, who spent his days, like the ten or fifteen elders of the wing, sitting on a chair along the wall of the dining room. Hello, Raymond, how are you? What have you been up to? Aren't you bored in here? And he answered, Oh, no, I am not bored. I go to the cinema and to the restaurant. I like walking. I walk a lot, you see. One day, I was doing a round, checking everything was okay in the rooms. I had a glimpse of Raymond masturbating with focused conviction. I discreetly sneaked away, thinking, Enjoy, my friend. I'm sure she was beautiful. Roland When I saw Roland for the first time, he was walking nervously to and fro in the ward. He was speaking out loud into a walkie-talkie without batteries. He was 19 years old. He had a nice kid's face. He was tall and slender. He asked me to open the door. A helicopter was waiting for him in the yard. He had to join his regiment that belonged to the 114th Panzer Division. He had to go fight in Lebanon. If he couldn't go, he would be considered a deserter and could be shot for that. It was extremely important. I could almost see the helicopter in the yard, but opening the door was out of the question. He had been sectioned. He had been legally labelled dangerous to himself or others. Under this status, he couldn't go outside, not even into the enclosed courtyard. Roland believed he was a kind of hero in the military, prevented from performing his duty. A couple of injections later, he had become another self, a friendly young man with a good sense of humour. He was always looking for his friend Francis. Have you seen Francis? Where is Francis? 
A nurse once answered to him, He is in his shirt. It was a way to say that you are not an information agency. Oh, replied Roland, I'm looking for shirts then. You could be witty. However, he would get indignant if it was suggested that he should cut his nails himself, or possibly trust a nurse to do this. No, 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 only his mother could perform such a task. And he was nineteen. Warrior, get your nails done and jump into this helicopter. Maria Maria was a little grandmother with great eyes, bent forward, and sticking her tongue in and out all the time. Her tune was, Oh, there will be nothing left for me. Will there be a little bit left for me? Oh, no, there will be nothing left for me. She used to lurk around the kitchen long before the time when the van would deliver the containers. We answered, Yes, Maria, there will be enough for everybody. Don't worry, you'll get your share. She looked surprised. She was silenced for a few seconds, and then she started again. Oh, no, there will not be anything left for me. Now that's enough, Maria. Get out of the kitchen. We have to close the door. We'll open it again at twelve when the food is there. Oh, no, 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 no. Maria went away, rubbing her anxieties between her hands. You've guessed, I'm sure. When the food was served, Maria couldn't stay put on her chair in front of her plate. She kept wandering between the tables, claiming, Oh, there is nothing left for me. Every now and then, a member of staff brought her back to her seat. She ate like a bird and flew away. Alan Alan had a big jaw that wouldn't give much work to a caricaturist and a naive but inquisitive, astonished and suspicious way to look at people. He was twenty-nine, and he was heavily epileptic. I liked him. We spent hours together in the workshop on the other side of the yard. Alan decided he wanted to make string art pictures. Alan was extremely anxious about failing. I had to be there, looking over his shoulder, checking, nail after nail, whether what he was doing was right. Is this it? Yes, Alan, it is. And now, is this it? Yes, Alan, go on. And so on, gesture after gesture, for hours. I felt how he felt. I know how anxieties can cloud the simplest operations with a veil of uncertainty. I admired his determination. If I left him for a little while, he went wrong. I knew that it was not on purpose. I never felt the urge of using hurtful words such as, can't you use your brain for a change? It's not that complicated for God's sake. It could be tempting sometimes. But when I was tired, I just said I was tired. After five or six months, he was able to cope all by himself, provided I was not far, just in case he would need me. 
he achieved a few string art pictures without help at all. He was so proud, and so was I. One day, Alan came back from a walk outside of the hospital. He was allowed to, and he came back with a tin can of cassoulet. A cassoulet is a kind of sausage and bean stew. It was 4 p.m., and in France, you don't eat at 4 p.m. Furthermore, a cassoulet is definitely something you should eat warm. But Alan wanted an opener to eat his cassoulet cold and directly from the tin. I had no reason to refuse. It was his cassoulet. I gave Alan the opener. We started to eat it at 4 p.m. directly from the tin. Cold. Bad luck, a nurse arrived. She was the kind of person who believes that things have to be done the way they are supposed to be done, just because that's how things are supposed to be. She started to waste Alan's pleasure by calling him a pig. I don't remember what Alan's answer was exactly, but it did not please her. She went on showering him with spiteful comments, to which Alan answered back with exasperation. You're disgusting! And you, you're disgusting too! Have you seen your face? Eventually, she told him that talking that way to a member of staff was utterly unacceptable, and he had to go with her to the infirmary to get his injection done. That is, the injection that is done in case of disruptive behavior and sends the person who gets it sleeping for two days. They went, there was a noise, and the nurse came out of the infirmary with a black eye and quite hysterical. She went to call for help. I went with Alan in the kitchen. As a member of staff myself, I couldn't tell him he was right. I offered him a cigarette instead, and he got the message. As a disciplinary measure, Alan would be forbidden from leaving the wing for six months, which implied not even being able to go to the workshop on the other side of the yard. As for the nurse, she would stay on sick leave for about a year. The so-called normal people may eat their food warm, all the right manners, and at the relevant time, I prefer those who know how to enjoy cold beans and sausages directly from the tin, regardless of the time. Srira. In shapeless overalls, she was lighting a cigarette with the butt of the other. She had beautiful dark eyes and hair, a pretty well-shaped body and a defiant attitude. She was French, her parents were from Algeria. She was a cabal. She was bipolar. In depressive mode, she could be so squashed that a cigarette would burn all by itself between her fingers. A long chimney of ash would rise above her motionless hand until the ember burned her. But when she wasn't depressed, wow, I was impressed. Beauty has such power. However, it didn't occur to me to enjoy more than a bit of conversation every now and then. Uh, she was mad. Uh, she was an inmate. 
I was an auxiliary nurse, you know, we were in a psychiatric hospital, there was a dividing line. After one year working in the ward, I had started the training to become a nurse. However, I had some questions. Do we really help? Giving away pills, getting them quiet and freeze their evolution? Is that helping? Is that right? How about listening and understanding? Would I settle in the cuckoo's nest for my living? No. I resigned. I resigned and then I started to dream about the beautiful girl. If life is not a fairy tale, as people say, that's only because we haven't got the guts to live it like a fairy tale, I thought. Life is a fairy tale, and in this tale, people have been cursed. They believe in a bunch of illusions that they call reason. Well, I was mad. I was twenty-two. My new dream sounded like this. Once upon a time, there was a Kabyle princess locked up in a psychiatric unit. Nearby was a young man. He believed that he could be a hero, a prince. I went to the wing, and I brought my Berber princess back to my flat, determined to cure her with love and love only. Once home, we started to make love. Would you abduct a consenting Berber princess and not make love with her? However, the way she behaved, her body language seemed to mean I shall lie down on my back and evaluate the performance. Well, I hate taking exams. I couldn't do much in the circumstance and she started to insult me. I believed in love. I may not have understood everything about mad princesses. She would stay at my flat for about two weeks, showering me with insults. I had a theory, a simple, simplistic theory. The evil, the pain, had to get out of her, and for this to be possible, I had to be there to take it in. I listened to her, I applied myself to feeling whatever she wanted to make me feel, and it was harsh. When I put on music, my choice was obviously the worst, the most insensitive and disconnected choice ever. But if I was asking her to choose, it was even worse not being able to take such decision. Every single word I would say, every detail... Every moment, everything I could do or not do, every silence even, would be evidence of my stupidity, of my worthlessness. I felt what she was passing on to me, because that was what she was feeling inside. I did my best not to defend myself. One way, we were both sitting at the table drinking coffee. We kept silent. I could physically feel the state of tension that was stretching my mind to a point where I was afraid it could get torn apart. Instinctively, to hold on, I was concentrating on Jesus' name. I was just thinking, with intensity, Jesus, 
Jesus. My mouth was shut, but she heard. She suddenly turned round, looked everywhere, and asked in a harsh tone, Who is talking about Jesus here? She saw nobody but me, silent. She softened a bit and said, Yes, sometimes I hear voices. Sometimes she hallucinated. She saw a fish turning around above her head. She often talked in a strange, metaphorical and cryptic way. One evening, night was falling. She put on every single light in the flat. She kept going about, singing or whistling out of tune. It was actually worse than out of tune. She was making noises, shaking drawers, slamming doors. She asked me, Do you know what it means when someone puts the lights on? She went on with zombies. Zombies do exist. You're going to see one. You'll run. You'll run. Just wait a little bit. She was terrifying. Not that I had ever thought about zombies or feared to meet some, but the intensity of the rage and contempt in her voice was like seeing zombies. She kept on and on. I had read Castaneda. I remembered a piece of advice given by the old sorcerer to his apprentice. Find your place of power. I had elected the tip of my bed. I was thinking, as long as I am sitting here, I am protected. It helped me. She actually didn't approach me. And then, I've seen the devil. Suddenly, the way she was moving wasn't her way of moving anymore. The sound of her voice wasn't the sound of her voice anymore. Another being was there, moving this body. I immediately thought it was the devil. It was just dancing, moving, making sound there in front of me for a few moments, seconds or minutes, I can't say. Towards dawn, she put off the lights and told me, when someone puts the lights on, that means that they have something to share. Then she left the flat. I'd never locked the door. I didn't try to hold her back. I had a feeling I'd done everything I could. The firemen would find her and bring her back to the hospital. I felt drained and peaceful. I went for a chat at a friend's. A few days later... I would come across a book on the ethnology shelves in a bookshop. The author was Isa Wittis, and the title, Possession, Magic and Prophecy in Algeria, where her family was from. It was a PhD thesis by someone who belonged to this culture. In the book, I spotted her case. It was not a curse. It was not the bad eye. The use of cryptic metaphors, the unpredictability of her behavior, it was as clear as a well, it was a case of possession by a djinn. I had seen a djinn. I knew very little of Muslim beliefs. However, reading this book, it appeared that the right cure for Srira might have been a ritual exorcism with readings of the Quran and possibly balls of cotton set of fire pushed up her nostrils, 
A way exorcists use to burn a djinn who does not easily accept leaving the body of a person they possess. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I spent a few months in a kind of exhilarated state before going for the worst bout of depression of my life. I would spend at least one year in a state of mental disintegration and many more years to slowly conquer a state of emotional balance. I don't attribute all my difficulties to what happened on, during these two weeks, which were mostly a trigger, I think. You know, the straws I broke the camel's back. But hey... As for the astrology, I don't remember the exact date when this story happened, but it was around May 1984, most probably during the first two weeks of May. So if you look at my chart and at the current transits, on the 1st of May 1984, there was a new moon at 10 degree Taurus that was opposing my Sun-Neptune conjunction in Scorpio. Saturn, a main player in my own natal chart, was transiting in retrograde motion over my natal sun, and therefore was part of this new moon transit. It was time for a powerful confrontation with reality. Neptune, at one degree Capricorn, was squaring my natal moon, and Pluto, at zero degree Scorpio, was squaring my natal Jupiter. Transits affect natal planets, and natal planets are connected with other natal planets. A transit affects actually a whole configuration. And in my natal chart, as you can see, the moon and Jupiter form an exact trine. So this trine was therefore very strongly affected by both transiting Pluto and Neptune. On the 15th of May, two weeks later, the slow transits of Saturn, Pluto and Neptune were the same as two weeks before, or almost the same. Saturn was exactly on my Sun, and there was a full Moon in Scorpio right on my natal Mars, with transiting Mars conjunct to this full Moon. Mars in my natal chart is important for being in Scorpio, almost conjunct my natal Sun and square to the node. For there is a lot with confronting inner demons with such a placement. Thank you for your attention. I'm a storyteller and an astrologer. I love combining these two arts. And now, well, visit my website. I offer readings. I also do creative writing on the basis of birth charts, which I call Astro Stories. So don't hesitate to visit uh, jeanmarcpearson.com just my name.com thank you take care and uh, next episode when it's ready <laughs>